Okay, if you would, open your Bibles to Romans, Romans chapter 6 this morning. You know, I don't know if you ever got one of those packages in the mail uh, that's kind of shrink-wrapped or kind of a vacuum-packed, I guess is the word I'm looking for, maybe a pillow or some type of pluff, uh, fluffy clothes, and as you open up that package, uh, and, and air comes into it, it just kind of swells up. Uh, have you ever gotten one of those packages? You got the picture that I'm talking about? Uh, that's kind of how I felt with looking at these verses this morning. The more time that I spent with them, the more air that got in there, uh, the more that it just swelled up and I had to continue to peel things back. And so I am excited um, for where we're headed here this morning and uh, as we continue our study through Romans. So Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 18 are the only ones that I'll be reading this morning. And God's inspired and inerrant word reads, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Far from it. Do you not know that the one to whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of that same one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were entrusted. And after being freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. Father, we ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And now, Lord, as your spirit moves among us and illuminates this text, may it just swell up in our hearts and our minds in a way that uh, is, does not just lead to a greater understanding. Uh, knowledge without any action is pointless. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, that it would shape our hearts and our minds, and that it would be a call to action. And so, Father, I pray uh, that your spirit would illuminate this text in our hearts and our minds this morning. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've simply titled this as, You Are a Slave. You Are a Slave. I, I like most genres of music. Uh, not all, but, but some. And, uh, and as of late, I've been jo- enjoying uh, a blues. Blues music. I just kind of like it. And uh, sometimes I kick back and, and put my earbuds on so Cheryl doesn't have to listen to it. And I put some earbuds on, not that she doesn't like it, but nonetheless, uh, I put some earbuds on and I just close my eyes and I imagine somewhere that I'm just down on the Louisiana Bayou, maybe in a speakeasy or something, I don't know, and just listening to some good old blues music. And there's a particular album that I like, a particular artist I like, Zach Williams. And he has an album called A Rescue Story. And I don't know if you're familiar with it. Of course, he has a song titled that also, but Rescue Story. And in that album, he's got a particular song that, that I like because it's very bluesy. And it's called Slave to Nothing. Slave to Nothing. I like the song, but that's an oxymoron. <laughs> a slave to nothing makes no sense. Because we indeed are a slave to something. I understand the message of the song. As Jesus followers, as followers of Jesus, we are indeed freed from uh, the chains of sin. We are indeed freed from the bondage and the baggage that is strapped onto us because of uh, Adam and Eve. Thank you very much for that original sin that we too have. And we're freed from that. And we have gone from being a slave to sin, though, to being a slave of Christ. We are slave to something. We are a slave. There is a strong ideology uh, in the world today, and probably always has been, and probably always will be, and that is something to that effect, right? That you're a slave to nothing. 
We see these stickers on the back of these, these jacked-up four-wheel drive trucks that all these kids like to ride today, right? And it says, no fear. We see it everywhere. We see it on the news, and we hear things uh, such as, my body, my choice. We hear things like, it's your truth or it's my truth. And there's this idea that, that we can be individual people. Human autonomy is so important today, and that we think that we must and we value it so greatly. Human autonomy simply means that a person has the right or the ability to make a decision on their own behalf. And that's the only factors that are brought into the decision is me and is what makes me happy or what works best for me and those that are around me. Now, this is partially true and that we do have human autonomy to a sense that there are some decisions that we can certainly make uh, for ourselves and on our own behalf. But I will lay out this morning from Scripture that there really is no such thing as a pure sense of human autonomy because we are slaves to something, slaves to sin and unrighteousness, or we are slaves to God and His righteousness. Those are the only two options that we have this morning. That's what I offer to you, and I will turn to the Scriptures, I think, to make that point simply because that's what point the point that Paul is making here um, this morning in these couple verses here. And so you can see in the outline uh, that was uh, the insert in your bulletin how I've broken this passage down. And we're going to start with verse 15 with a ridiculous question. I mean, it's a ridiculous question as Paul presents it. And he starts out with the, with the question of what then? And he kind of stops right there. And this isn't a response to verse 14. And says that if we're no longer under the, uh, the law, Paul is saying, and so therefore, if we're no longer under the law, the moral law, uh, not necessarily the ceremonial laws, Paul is just speaking of the moral law here. And if we're no longer under that moral law, and then it shouldn't matter how I live my life, right? I mean, that is a fair, uh, uh, we can fairly draw that conclusion from what Paul is saying. And that's what they're saying. Verse 15 is a parallel to verse 1 which is in a response to chapter 5, verse 20 to 21, because Paul is continuing this ridiculous questions that are being asked because of the freedoms that we have as being slaves to Christ instead of slaves to sin in of itself. And so verse 2 is in a response to the question, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? There's only one answer. We haven't died to sin. That's the only answer that can be given to that question. And so verse 15 of our text here today, what then? Because Paul understands the argument that is coming. And it's an argument that isn't unique to this time. It's also uh, 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 for us here today because we too very much ask that question. Verse 15, he goes on from what then are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace. And I find this an interesting thing, right, that he jumps from one extreme to the another. He jumps from one ditch into the other, and that's often what we do as people. And that's exactly what Paul is hedging against. That's exactly what Paul is speaking against. Just because you're no longer under the law, you can't automatically jump all the way over here and do whatever you want to do. And just because it, Paul says if you keep on sinning, the more you sin, the more grace increases, well, therefore, I just need to keep on sinning so grace can increase, right? We see this. We see this that's happening here in this church, and the same thing happens, uh, I think, throughout all humanity, throughout all generations. 
And this is a pattern of the human emotion. Like a dog whose chain has been, who has been chained for many, many years, right? And all of a sudden you let that dog loose, what happens? The dog goes wild. Now I've seen this pattern in our church growing up as a young lad. Uh, no, I didn't say young boy, I said a young lad, Cheryl. So as a young lad, uh, I've seen this in our church so many times in our tradition, our legalistic tradition, that all of a sudden people would get under out of the weight of the otling, out of the weight of the bishops and the preachers and the pastors of the church, and they would just go wild. They would go from one extreme to the other. They would all of a sudden come, come from these religiously, conservatively just uh, men and women and to, 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 to whatever. I mean, you don't even recognizable anymore. Right? And they go from that one extreme to the other. This is the pattern for all humanity, in essence, is it not? We can also pick on those who leave the home of their parents. They leave the home of their parents and they do what? Broad generalities, right? They go wild. They leave town. We go wild because we don't have to, nobody knows us to where we just went. But at home in our town, we live under this, this set of rules or under this umbrella. We go off to college. We go wild. No one's looking. We go wild. Again, that's broad generalities, but you hear what I'm saying. Outback Steakhouse, I, I'm reminded of a slogan they used to have. Maybe they still have it. Like, Outback Steakhouse, are they even around anymore? I don't know. I guess they are. Maybe. But they had a slogan that was what? See, their, their marketing department's bad. Because you should know that. No rules, just right. No rules, just right. I mean, isn't that what we think about so many times? Is no rules, just right. No law. We're not under law. No, we're under grace. Let's do whatever we want to do. Verse 15, though, it does continue along, does it not? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but we are under grace? And Paul says, far from it. Or your translation may say, may it never be. He can't be more emphatic on that position. He can't be stronger in his, his, um, his vocabulary here when he says, far from it. That's not even remotely close what you should be interpreting of what I am trying to teach you here. Nothing could be further from the truth. When a person goes wild, the person goes wild. When a person has this mindset that because I'm free in Christ, therefore I can live however I want. When a person goes wild, the person goes wild because the person is wild. When the person rebels against that because he says, I'm living under grace, the person isn't rebelling because he's out out from under the law. The person is rebelling because they have never been brought under the law. They they are wild in and of themselves. When a person leaves the faith, it is because they never had the faith. 2 Timothy Paul told Timothy there that there's this form of godliness that some people have, but it's not true godliness. When a kid goes off to college, we lament this so many times, a kid goes off to college, I mean, they were great kids at home, and they go off to college, and they just lost their faith. No, they never had a faith. This is what the responsibility of the church is to make sure that we're not falsely Falsely giving assurance to kids that do not have a faith. And this is what Paul is speaking to right here. They didn't lose it. You can't lose what you never had. That's what Paul is, is saying. And that's the, 
That's the emphasis that he's upon this, for far from it. Far from it. But now I want you also to notice in verse 16 the obvious argument that Paul is making. Paul transitions, he transitions to the ridiculous question, doesn't spend much time there, and jumps right to the obvious argument of verse 16. And he starts out with the, do you not know? And again, as we've talked about in the past, this isn't a question, this is a statement of fact. And Paul is saying in these couple words, do you not know? He is saying, you know that if you use the excuse to sin so that grace may increase, Paul says, you know that if you use the excuse to sin because you are not under the law, therefore you also know that if that's the approach, if that's the mentality that you are using, and then you also know that you are not a Christian. If you are saying, I am on, I'm under grace, not under the law, Sin no longer has affected me because I'm freed from sin. Therefore, I can live however I want to live. No, that means you are not a truly saved person. The freedoms that we have in Christ doesn't give us the freedom to live however we want to live. Now, I trust in the biblical teaching of the eternal security of the believer. But if this belief leads to a life of willful sin, And then I also believe that the Bible would teach us that that person was never a true believer. We must understand that just because somebody portrays themselves as a believer and then leaves the faith or lives however they want to live, and therefore we think that, well, they're they're obviously, they've left the faith. No, that's not the conclusion we must draw. It It ought to bring us sober mindedly to this idea of how do we pronounce salvation on people. We have to be careful because you and I cannot see the heart. And just because somebody portrays themselves in a certain way does not, does not mean that they are Christian. John says in John chapter uh, 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, he says, they went, out from, from, they went out from us. Why, John? Why did they go out from us? John says, because they were never of us. Is it any more clear than that? They went out from us because they were never of us. Now, we can say whatever we want, but the evidence of what we believe is seen in what we do, right? Everybody knows that, do they not? We can say whatever we want to do. We can say whatever we believe. doesn't matter. The evidence of what we truly believe is seen in what we do. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he says that faith, he says that faith without works is dead. Now, many people seem to pit these two letters together, the letter of James and the letter of Rome, but, but they're just talking to two different groups of people. They're saying the exact same thing. Turn with me to James chapter 2, if you would. In James chapter 2, uh, it's, a, it's a passage of Scripture that we're, we are familiar with. In James chapter 2, James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. James, the brother of Jesus, writes this. He says, he says, what use is it? What use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone, he has, someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Paul, James is not teaching faith by works. He's just saying you say you have faith, but there's no evidence of faith in your life. Is that truly a saving faith then? 
And then look at the illustration that, that James uses in verse 15. This is simply an illustration that James is bringing into the text here. And he says if, he starts out with the conditional clause, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and you say to that person, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you don't actually give that person food, if you don't actually put clothes on that person's back, did you accomplish anything? That was pointless and that was worthless. This is the illustration that James is using. He's draw, and he turns a corner and he says, so too is the person who says they have faith. So too is the person who says, I'm a follower of Jesus, but nothing in their life points to evidence to what they say they believe and how they live their life. Verse 19 should be one that should very much bring pause to our life when we think on these terms of faith and works. That all you have to do is believe. Well, that person says they believe in God. Well, James says, yes, it is demons. The demons believe in God also, and they shudder. A belief in of itself saves no one. It's the actions that we see, the result of the fruit of their life, is how we know a person is saved. And boy, we could open go down a rabbit trail there that I'll refrain from going down because we've got so many examples in our biblical text that would solidify that point, but that'd be a sermon for another day. Uh, the point is here that I'm trying to make, and that is that what we say must match up with what we do. And so I ask you today, I ask you this morning, what are you saying? What are you saying and what are you doing? What are you saying and what are you doing? Oftentimes we'll hear the lament, picking on some generic examples, right? Picking on the event of, well, they, whoever they is, right? When somebody says they, you need to say, who's they, right? I mean, they is somebody. Uh, it's not just anybody, but often we categorize it that way. So they took Bibles out of school, and we lament that, rightly so. But if you will lament that they took Bibles out of school and your kids never see you reading the Bible at home, well, they took prayer out of schools, but your kids never see you praying at home? We can say and we can do, which is right. We, we, all the, we have the constitutional right to worship. We got freedom of religion. Great. Amen. But your kids never see you go to church. Right? This is what Paul is saying, and this is exactly the point that is being made here this morning. We must bring this home to us here today. We love everyone. How do our kids, how does our spouse, when I come home from work, when my wife comes home from work, when you come home from how do we talk? We say we love everyone because we know that's the right answer. But how do we act? We're guilty of this. Every single one of us can be from time to time. What about our social media pages? Man, those are chock full of this, aren't they? One post is God is love. The next post, this person is stupid. Or scrap that word. I'm not allowed to say that word in church. Scrap that word. Never mind. No kids are here. Good. Right? I mean, this is how we function. It's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. And yet, this is the right? And yet, we're not under the law. We're not, we're not, we're not, we're under grace. Yet we struggle with these sins. And yet those sins do not control us. Look back to your Bible. Look back to your Bible. One thing we must understand is that to be under God's grace, to be under out of the law and under God's grace, 
is to be under the obligation to obey God. And so when you look at your Bible and go back to the, uh, the, 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 the obvious argument that Paul is making in verse 16, in verse 16, where he goes on and he continues there, and he says, do you not know that the one to whom you present yourselves as slaves? Now, let's stop there for a moment. Do you not know that the one to whom you present yourself as slaves? This word present. We must understand the meaning of this present. Now, we understand what it means, but let's understand a fuller meaning of it and what Paul, how Paul is using it here. Present is just to, to put at someone's disposal. Now, think about this, right? To put at someone's disposal, to, be, to, to make available, to make accessible. That's you. You are making yourself available. You are making yourself acceptable. You are presenting yourself to someone or to something. This is a willful act on our part. You are not passive participant. You are actively giving permission. Right? And so Paul is saying, do you not know that the one to whom you present yourself, the one who, to whom you give yourself over as a slave, you're giving that person permission. I sometimes will hear you might have been there yourself from time to time. We'll hear somebody say something like, oh, I don't know how that happened. I just, I don't know. Well, yeah, you do. You know exactly how it happened. We hear it often sometimes, and especially when we look at adultery and things such as that. Well, it just happened. No, it didn't just happen. There came a point in time you gave yourself over. Whatever sin, whatever you want to talk about, that's an easy one to pick on, right? But whatever it is that we struggle with, well, I just... This sin trips me up. Well, no. There comes a point in time where you give permission. You give yourself over. You present yourself to it as a slave, as a doulos, as a slave. And a slave is just simply, we know what it is. It's just a person who is legally owned by someone else, whose entire livelihood and purpose was determined by their master. Slaves are duty-bound. Only to their owners and master or those to whom total allegiance is pledged. Uh, a doulos is just pretending. A slave is just pretending to the state of being completely controlled by someone or something. Let's go back and read verse 16 with those definitions in mind. In verse 16, do you not know that the one to whom you present yourselves as slaves for obedience you are slaves of that same one to whom you obey. Now, here's the two choices. You fall into these two camps, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. There's only two types of slaves. You are one of these, either a slave to self or you're a slave to God. Everyone falls in these two camps. Slave to self results in death. Slave to God results in righteousness. Turn with me. This is the last place I'll ask you to turn, I promise. Uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 16, and your mind might have already gone there. In Luke chapter 16, in Luke chapter 16 at verse uh, 13, it says, no servant can serve. Well, that, that's, a, that's a very generous translation. No, no servant can serve. It's, it, it's, it's literally to be a slave, right? And so it's no servant can be slave to two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to, 
to the one and despise the other. You cannot be a slave to God and wealth, to God and worldly, to the God and the world. And Jesus here is talking to some Pharisees, and he continues on. And he says, and now some Pharisees, who they were lovers of money, and they were listening to all these things, and they were ridiculing Jesus for saying them. And Jesus said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves. And I that's right. They are the ones who justify themselves in the sight of people. And then, then he continues, but God knows. Justify themselves, but God knows your hearts. Because that which is highly esteemed among people, that which the culture, that which our peers highly esteem, Jesus says, is detestable in the sight of God. See, our values are incorrect when we put our esteem, when we put our importance on what culture defines as important. And he continues, the law and the prophets, they were proclaimed until John came. And since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Again, do you see, sometimes we just read of forcing himself into it. The forcing is a term of violence, not a physical violence, but just demanding and declaring, I am indeed a follower of Christ. Don't you tell me the way that I'm living my life is not. We're forcing ourselves into our own gospel, into our own easy believism. But it is easier, Jesus continues, for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of law to fall. And then he inserts this verse about divorce and remarriage, which Obviously, that must have been a question they were talking about. But it's just interesting, right, that, that we think, well, I can serve. And often that's what we think. Well, I can serve God, and I can serve the church, or I can serve the church, and I can serve whatever. I can serve myself. No, we can't. Because really, there the idea is of being a slave. And you cannot be a slave to two masters. Paul will later, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he will write to these same Roman Christians that they are to present. Again, it's, a, it's, a, it's active participation. You are to present your bodies. You are to present all that you are as a living and as a holy sacrifice that's acceptable to God. Why? Because this indeed is worship. This is your spiritual act of worship. Who you obey is who you serve. It's who you worship. You are a slave to the one you obey. In Matthew 7, 16, it says, you will know them by their fruit. And this is a verse we hear so many times put into the lap of Christian people. Well, it's by your fruit. Look at the good things that I'm doing. Look, I saved the little puppy. <laughs> you know, I helped the person across the road. I am a nice person. Sure, that's great. It doesn't define you as a Christian. What's Jesus saying by knowing by your fruit? And he gives these two examples. Again, he looks at these examples. He says, can grapes come from thorn bushes? Of course not. If you don't see a grape on a thorn bush, can, can, can figs, they don't, you don't find them on a thistle? I mean, he's drawing these two obvious comparisons. Therefore, the fruit of a Christian is not good works per se, but it is obedience. Obedience is our good fruit. There is the fruit of the Spirit, which we all know, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. So 
self-control, kindness, all those. Fruit of the Spirit. Even humanists can have those. The fruit of the fruit that Jesus is speaking of here is obedience to the commands and laws of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you're familiar with his writings, I would encourage you to, 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 to read them. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says that the, the slave owner insists upon a certain type of conduct. Therefore, if you look at a man's conduct, you can tell who his master is. Fruit of the conduct, the fruit, the conduct of the Christian is obedience, is obedience. Let's come back to our text and see the glorious summary. The glorious summary in uh, verses 17 and 18. Verses 15 and 16, they were somewhat negative. But now in verse 17, Paul turns a positive and he starts out with, but thanks be to God. But thanks be to God. But again, we just got to look at the negative side of but thanks be to God before we can continue on what Paul is not saying when he says, but thanks be to God. Paul is not saying, but thanks be to God that you have made the right decision to follow Christ. Paul is not saying, but thanks be to God that you chose to follow Jesus, that you have decided to follow Jesus. Paul is happy about those things, but that's not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here is that in his outburst, of thanksgiving, Paul does not praise the church in Rome for turning to God, but thanks God for freeing his people from slavery. Paul understands that everything starts with God. You see that in verse 17, but thanks be to God. This is a pattern that Paul, you see throughout all of Paul's writings, just two examples. In 1 Corinthians, you have them there in your notes. In 1 Corinthians 15, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Everything for Paul starts with God, not with the individual. And this must be our pattern also, knowing what Paul already said in 5.8, that while we were still sinners... Not when we made any decision, but while we were still sinners, Christ has died for those who will believe and trust upon Him. Ephesians chapter 2, 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not a works, this is not of your own. That way you can't boast about it. But it is a gift. It is a gift from God, the gift from God. So how else can a Christian respond except but Thanks be to God, right? How else can we respond? Paul is thanking God that although they had been slaves of sin, God has freed them. He's freed them from this slavery. And they have now become a slave of righteousness. You are a slave to something, either sin or to righteousness. In verse 17, he continues, Though you were slaves of sin, such were some of you, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And he gives this whole list of things. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. You're no longer that. That was who you were, but you're not that anymore. And he continues in verse 17. You became obedient from the heart. You became obedient from the heart, Paul is saying. And later, Paul will tell the Roman Christians in 10.10, 10, Romans 10.10, 10, right? 
that with the heart, the person believes. Not with actions per se, not with just, but it's with the heart, with this true heart that a person believes. We don't just pay lip service to believe. It is a sincerity that comes from the heart. And Paul continues in verse 17. I should have just preached a sermon on verse 17. In verse 17, he says, to that form of teaching. To that form of teaching that they that was given to them. Now, this word form, we can hear it in the Greek word. If I'll just say it in the English, but typos. So, right, we can hear it. It's a type. It is a pattern. This was a repetition. This was something that they could, they could replicate. This was a form of teaching that they received. Paul will tell Timothy. He will tell Timothy, hold on to the example, our same word. Hold on to the example of sound words, which you have heard from me. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, preach the word, because the time will come. Well, they will not tolerate sound doctrine. But they will turn from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths and to things such as that. And he continues in verse 17, to which were you were committed to which you were committed, it's given over. To which you were entrusted, your translation may say. You were entrusted this teaching. The form of teaching to which has, they've been committed to them was not one of easy believism. It's the one ditch in the road. The other ditch is antimonianism. They didn't know that that's the other side of the ditch. It, it, it's all about laws. So you can, you can believe whatever you want because you know you're anti-law, you're against the law, so you're not in that ditch anymore, and you're also not under this legalistic ditch on this other side where it's all about the rules and the regulations. John Piper writes and um, asks this question in his book, Providence. His book simply titled Providence. He asks this question. I think it's a question we all would like to answer, right? How does God see to it that his people are conformed to Christ, and now listen, and make it safely from conversion to glory, that make it safely from this life as followers of Christ to heaven. Isn't that what we all want, right? How do we do that? How does God ensure that that happens? He says two ways. First, Christ once for all purchase of total forgiveness and once for all providence or provision of, of perfect righteousness. Total forgiveness and total righteousness that we have been given is the imputation of Christ's righteousness upon us. And then second, he says, God brings us to glory by commanding us to engage all that we are in wholehearted pursuit of holiness. And in parenthesis there, I wrote in sanctification, right? That's how. Just because we are under grace does not mean that God does not demand Obedience. Hebrews 12, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And Ezekiel writes, I will remove the heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. Walk in my statues. Walk in my ordinances. And the last words of Jesus, when he left the disciples in Matthew 28, the great commission, he commanded them to be obedient. He said, go. It starts out with a command. Go. Make disciples. It's a command. Baptize them. It's a command. Teaching them. It's a command. Follow all that I have commanded you. The last words of Jesus were a command for 
obedience in the slave economy of the ancient world. In the slave economy of the ancient world, a slave didn't have a lot of choices, but a slave may may make a public, a voluntary public declaration of the slave-master relationship. And he would do this by offering his ear, and he'd place his ear upon the doorpost, and the master, the owner of the slave, would take a pull, would take a punch at all, and would punch a hole through the slave's ear, right? Publicly having this evidence that this is my master, I belong to him. He can do it voluntarily. He doesn't have to do it, but he can do it voluntarily. And the slave would do that. And for us today, when you think of that imagery that the Bible tells us there, well, I don't think anybody's going to, well, actually, I have some people with a pretty hole punched in their ear, but never mind. That's another, that's something else, I think. Um, but for the Christian today, this public declaration is obviously baptism, for sure. But even more, this mark, this mark of ownership, this mark of who our slave, or who our slave master, who our master is, is obedience. Not obedience out of obligation, but out of obedience for the love of our master. Go on sinning so grace may increase. Go on sinning because we are not under the law. Paul says, far from it. May it never be. Listen, as followers of Christ, we are indeed that. We are free and free indeed. But that doesn't give us the right to live however we want. We are free. But it does not give us the right to sin. So I pray this morning that you can take both, both the exhortation from that and also the comfort from that, knowing that we don't live under the law. And yet, and yet our obedience to Christ does demand something of us. Father, I pray this morning. I pray, Father, that as we think about these words, as we think about being a slave, who are we a slave to? I pray, Lord, that as we think about obedience, as we think about grace, the challenge that come be between the two of these, of living under grace, and that also realizing that this grace causes something, this grace, grace demands of something. I pray, Lord, that it is only you that searches the hearts and our minds. And as we come to your table this morning, this is what we're celebrating. We're celebrating that we don't live under the fear of slavery or the fear of sin and death, but we live under grace. We live under what you have done on our behalf. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.